0: Good morning, morning. almost afternoon, great to see you guys, great to be here together as a church family, as a church body uh, in worship, and uh, a great privilege just for me to bring the message to you today. Um, It's always a a humbling opportunity to just dig into the word and then uh, be able to communicate that to you. So very thankful this morning that it's not up to me that God speaks through his word, And uh, can trust him, trust him for that. <clears throat> so, uh, again, my name's Kurt, part of the pastoral team here, and uh, great to be together. We're going to jump in, uh, continuing in our passage, uh, our study of Luke. And uh, this morning we are in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 24. And really it's part two of what Drew Matthews started last week he started with the first 12 verses, and it was uh, Jesus sending out the 72 and uh, sending them out to accomplish the mission of spreading the, the good news of the gospel, uh, sending them out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, uh, and them being a part of that. And so we're going to jump in and, and continue to the, <clears throat> continue with that and see this week uh, the 72 returning, and, and the significance of that, and all that that means. Uh, part of the, the fun of speaking on Sunday morning is me getting to know you, because this is uh, you know one of the rare times that I get to see you from this perspective, uh, looking out at you from this angle, uh, but it's also an opportunity where I want you to get to know me, and uh, so just want to share with you this morning, just a little bit, a little snippet from my life, and say... Uh, I grew up about 30 minutes east of the honeymoon capital of the world. Woo! It's an exciting place, isn't it? Where is the honeymoon capital of the world? Las Vegas, Las Vegas. no. Did I? Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, there it is. Niagara Falls, New York, known as the honeymoon capital of the world. Amazing, right? Now, my next question is. Did any of you go to Niagara Falls on your honeymoon? Show of hands. Look at them all. All right? We're three for three in services today. And not only are we three for three in services, I have yet, even growing up 30 minutes east of Niagara Falls, I have yet, well, that's, yeah, okay, let me clarify that. The only people I have ever met that have gone to Niagara Falls on their honeymoon are my in-laws. Who actually just spent one night there on their way to Canada for like an outdoor like camping expedition. Uh, So man honeymoon capital of the world and yet I have yet to meet a single person that's actually gone there for their their honeymoon. So what gives? Well apparently I've had a lot of I had a long week this week to be able to research these important facts. Um, The early 1800s Uh, There was a a very well-to-do couple from New York City that got married and went on a grand expedition west all the way to Buffalo, New York. The world, the country was smaller then, right? And uh, hit Buffalo, turned right, took a north, north turn, and uh, ventured to Niagara Falls and Just the exploits of that trip and the the grandeur and the wonder of seeing that, it became a destination for mm, well-to-do couples and an exciting, you know, real, I don't know, barnstorming adventure to go west and, and find Niagara Falls on your honeymoon. In 1825, the Erie Canal opened, which extended across the state of New York, and then made it much more accessible for anyone to go. And so the popularity increased, and more and more people started going there for trips for their honeymoon and and whatnot. Well, a lot has happened since 1825, right? Um, And what's interesting is growing up there, I have taken untold number of trips to Niagara Falls. Uh, We would go multiple times per year. Anytime a family member from out of town or friends from out of town would come visit, what would you do? You'd pile in the car and go to Niagara Falls. And it was pretty cool, all right? The first few times I remember uh, explicitly just standing there on the brink of the falls and being struck with wonder of like, wow, this is really big. That's a lot of water. It's about 180 feet high, which it doesn't sound like a huge height, right? 180 feet until you're standing on the edge. And then 180 feet for a kid who is already a little nervous about heights is very large uh, and even more impressive with, wow, that goes way down into a canyon and uh, all of this water going across. Um, then the next trivia question, how much water flows over the brink of Niagara Falls? A little bit. All right. A lot. Yes, exactly. That is the correct answer. Uh, a lot. Right. Uh, and so water is, I'm no hydrologist and discovered this trying to, to look it up that like flow rate is like somehow measured. I don't know if anybody's a hydrologist here, you could really help me out. But in tons and, you know, tons is all dependent on air pressure and temperature because then it changes. And holy cow, my eyes rolled back in my head. Like, I just want to know how much water goes over So I was finally finally able to to figure it out and find the information. So the American side of the falls, as you see, which is the the closer, the the nearer side of the picture, um, it is, there, or I should say, uh, water flows over the brink at a rate of 75,750 gallons per second. Whew, that's a lot of water uh, rushing over the rushing over the brink of the falls. Now, the Canadian side, way in the background of the picture, is much bigger. It's a horseshoe shape, and so there's a lot of surface area around the the brink of the falls. Would you believe that water flows over the Canadian side of the falls at a rate of 681,750 gallons per second? Anyone impressed? That's a lot. That's a lot of water. And again, to stand there and to see that, you can't help but be awed by the sheer power of the water, the sheer sound of the water. Niagara Falls is one of those few fun places that you get to visit where you hear it before you see it. Just the roar of the water and the thunder of that water crashing into the the basin below. Uh, Really a neat thing. And again, you can't help but stand there and be awed and struck with wonder like, wow, this is really a sight to behold. This is something that is deeply impacting me, the, just the natural beauty of it. And I can stand here and drink this in for six minutes until I get distracted by something else. What's interesting is <clears throat> you go to Niagara Falls now and certainly the falls are still there and still flowing at this unbelievable rate per second. And it is still just as beautiful as you see today. But yeah, again, not a single person that I've ever met has been there for their honeymoon, and it's called the honeymoon capital of the world. Tourism isn't quite as hot as it was back in the early 1800s and even 1900s. And bit by bit, what you'll find now in the city of Niagara Falls is typical of every common, like, tourist trap destination, right? really weird miniature golf places, cheap t-shirt shops, and wax museums. Like, wax museums? What? I'm going to Niagara Falls to see a wax museum of, like, Winston Churchill or something. I don't know. Weird. It is. And so you ask yourself, what, what is going on here that uh, something so spectacular, so awe-inspiring has become so ordinary, so just regular, that we have to come up with something else to try to attract people to come and see it. Maybe I'm gonna go to Niagara Falls so I can go miniature golfing. It's true, I mean, it happened in my life. Eventually living there, uh, the the frequent trips to Niagara Falls again became ordinary and I stopped going. And so the, the family car was going to take someone who may be visiting for the very first time to see it. And I said, I think I'll just stay home. And it reveals, uh, I think, a common proclivity uh, that over time, as visits become more frequent, the wonder turns plain. And that common uh, aspect or the the common thing that can impact all of our hearts is that a familiar splendor is reflected by my muted wonder. That even something spectacular and glorious and awe-inspiring can become what is best described by that emoji, meh. What happens in our hearts becomes <clears throat> a muted wonder. So we jump into the passage today, Luke chapter 10. I want us to look at this passage, the second part of, or, or the, really the, the 72 coming back, I want us to look at it through this lens. And that is the lens of Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2, it says this, My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all His benefits. And that word bless, that charge bless the Lord there, don't be, become comfortable with that word in the sense of it's like the southern charm of, oh, bless your heart. It's just something, you know, gentle and nice. No, the word bless there means paying back what is deserved, giving all that is due to that particular thing. So the lens to look through this and to read Psalm 103 is, my soul, give all that is due to the Lord. All that is within me, pay back what is deserved to his holy name. Give everything to his holy name. My soul, give all that is due to the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. Bless the Lord. This is our lens. To you pray with me? God, as we look into your word this morning, we ask that you would simply speak to us. And when I say uh, simply speak to us, God, what a, an amazing, wonderful, marvelous thing it is that you do speak to us. Um, that God, the creator of the universe, uh, would communicate with us, his creation. God, we <clears throat> desire to hear your voice, uh, no, nothing else, no one else's. God, we desire that uh, our hearts would be challenged and changed by your word, that we would be different leaving here today than when we came in. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Luke 10, 13 through 24. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. First thing, as we look at this passage, we see it starts with, almost a jolt, with what feels like trying to, to onboard at about 75 miles an hour. Jesus is proclaiming woes to these three specific cities. He says, woe to you Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, calling them out. And uh, for what? These three cities are on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And this is the main geographical area that Jesus' public ministry took place. And so What we read in the Gospels and the events of the Gospels more than likely took place in this general region of these these three cities, almost forming a triangle on top of the the Sea of Galilee. So they had front row seats to what was happening, uh, to what was taking place. And Jesus hits them and almost jolts them with a very significant comparison in a charge. It says, for if the miracles that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, two different cities, they would have repented long ago. Now, these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, were very well-known cities in the ancient world. When Jesus spoke this, those two cities had long been destroyed, and so they were more legend than anything, but very well-known. People would have known exactly where and what and what these two cities were all about. Uh, Tyre, specifically, was a very wealthy city, a very successful city. Uh, It's on the the eastern coast of the the Mediterranean Sea, north of Israel, uh, where Lebanon is is currently uh, now on the map. So it was a very successful seaport, and as such, uh, accumulated great wealth, and was a fortified city, and strong, and thought of itself to be indestructible, impenetrable, and, well, we don't need anything else because look at us, we're doing great. So they became very hard hearted, not only in the f- hardened physically in a uh, almost, you know, castle fortress type mentality, but also hardened spiritually in that they didn't need anything else and that the quote unquote spirituality that they did have was Baal worship and idolatry. In the Old Testament, there were many prophets who tried to bring the message of God to them, and almost in a a warning sense, but they were extremely close to that. And so Jesus giving this example of, if the miracles that were performed in you, these three cities where Jesus' ministry took place, in these other two cities, they would have repented, but here you are, hard-hearted, This passage starts again with Jesus still speaking to his disciples before they went out. And as he is speaking, it's almost like an internal monologue that he verbalizes. And in revealing this, in revealing the woes to the cities and this comparison, he is well aware that there are some that are not going to respond to the message of the gospel. So therefore, that is why that we have this this rather extreme and jolting comparison here uh, and woes to these cities. Now, as we look at this, I ask myself the question, man, how could their hearts have become so calloused? And I'm quickly reminded of my own heart and my own proclivity that, again, something familiar, even spectacular, over and over again My temptation is to treat it as regular and not be be moved by it. Looking at these woes, the first few verses, as Jesus speaks these woes, no doubt it is a serious message and something to to pay attention to, but there's two important things that we can learn from that. As we look at the, again, it's a a serious message, these woes, but uh, within that we see that this is Jesus communicating more of a longing rather than a curse. He isn't cursing these cities, condemning them. He does know what the, the, the condition and that they will be unresponsive. But, but him speaking woe is a warning is, and it reveals a longing that, oh, I wish it weren't going to be this way, but this is what you have in front of you. Two important things that we see from this, these, these woes. The first is that it shows us the heart of man. That how hard and blind our hearts can become. How quick to overlook and forget we can be. That in the <clears throat> response to something regular, even spectacular, we respond with, meh. But it also shows us the heart of Jesus. A few weeks ago when we started our progression through Luke and we went through Luke chapter 4 verse 18 where Jesus was speaking in the temple, unrolled the scroll and read from Isaiah and communicated this is what he is going to be about. He said, I am here to minister to the PPBO. I am here to bring good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the prisoner, sight to the blind and to release the oppressed. His heart was for people. Rewind just two weeks when Jesus sent disciples on ahead to prepare a place for them in a certain town and the town rejected them and James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy them for this great insult and Jesus replied by saying, no, we are here again showing his heart. We are here to save people, not to destroy people. That is what I am about. We see the heart of Christ even in this woe. For if someone is speaking a woe to you, they are trying to be a friend to you. Think of it in the parenting context. As parents, moms, and dads, we speak woe to our kids sometimes. Sometimes it sounds differently, like, hey, you're cruising for a bruising. Or, you know, I'd smarten up if I were you. What we're trying to do is to communicate that, hey, kiddo, currently the path that you're on is a path of danger. And I'm speaking this because I so long for you to come back to a place of safety. I so long for you to come back to a place of life, a place of nurturing and growth. And I want you there because I love you and I want what is best for you. Do that with our kids. We're, We're not speaking woe to our children or even to a friend because we are Anxious to punish or really looking forward to the opportunity to condemn our kids or a a close friend. No, it's the exact opposite. It's because we love them and are concerned for them. Jesus is doing the the same thing here as he says, woe. Someone is speaking a woe to you. Be quick and be careful not to close your own ears in your heart. It's because someone is speaking love to you. Then this, we also see a sure and certain truth. And that is, unrepentant sin brings destruction. Verse 15, it says, And you, Capernaum, as well as Chorazin and Bethsaida, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Unrepentant sin brings destruction. And, and by that, I, I, I don't mean that unrepentant sin is, well, that's just a pretty bad day and it's going to bring a stressful situation to your life. No, what it means here is unrepentant sin brings disconnection from God. That's what it is. Very significant and um, serious uh, state and, and condition, but it is a sure truth nonetheless. But also here, very clearly, that there is a sure promise within this as well. Within this message, and that is humble confession brings forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Every time. If we humble our hearts before the Lord and seek Him, we will absolutely find Him without hesitation. Without reconsideration from the Lord, He will meet us in that humble confession. As I reflect upon the heart of man, and as I reflect upon the heart of Jesus... Where do I land? Where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? We're not told how long they're gone, but here in verse 17, all of a sudden the 72 have returned and they have returned with, well, reports of a successful run and a really positive stretch of ministry that they've been involved with. It says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Whoa. Whoa. God, Jesus, we're blown away at what we just saw. That what you told us about and what you were telling us to be involved with and to do, it worked. It was amazing. I can't believe it. Even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus responds and confirms them by stating in verses 18 and 19, he says, I watched Satan fall like lightning. He says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, nothing at all will harm you. What does that mean? I watched Satan fall like lightning. <clears throat> Means as Jesus is declaring here that there is a new sheriff in town, that there is a transition that is that is taking place. The kingdom of God is now being ushered in and things are radically different. And so his Response, Jesus' response was joyful recognition of what their success really meant. And that's the ultimate complete failure of Satan in his opposition to the redemptive purposes of God in Jesus. And what a great, glorious, wonderful, clear picture this is. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Fed thunderstorms the last couple of nights, and if you were outside and just enjoyed watching the lightning, what have you noticed about lightning? It's not subtle, is it? You don't have to, like, was that lightning? I'm not quite sure. Or if you've ever been near where a bolt has, like, hit, uh, yeah, not subtle at all. It is sure, it is quick, it is unmistakable. Jesus is declaring the defeat of Satan, the failure of Satan. It is sure, it is quick, it is unmistakable, it is going to happen. He is proclaiming that there is nothing that can stand in the way of the power of the gospel or the kingdom of God. Satan fell like lightning, a reason for celebration. It says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. How we connect to that personally is, and, and understand that personally, is uh, Michael Heiser is a, a Bible teacher, uh, great expositor of the word and if you've enjoyed any of the bible project he's involved in some of that as well and he says this about this verse he says what Jesus is stating here what Jesus is saying by Satan falling like lightning is that Satan has no legal claim as the Lord of the dead over a citizen of the kingdom of heaven they will never die they will die physically but they will live forever their sin has been taken care of they are reconciled to God the personal aspect of that, as a follower of Christ, if you have placed your faith in his redeeming power, placed your faith and trust in uh, the reconciliation that only Jesus can bring, then we understand and know that Satan has no legal claim over my life. I will never die. will die physically, but I will live forever. My sin has been taken care of. I have been reconciled to God. How significant is that? That is glorious, marvelous, wonderful truth that we can stake our whole lives upon, our whole security upon. So how do we do that? What does this do for us? How does this truth ground us? First, it establishes the security of my salvation. When Jesus himself said, Satan falls like lightning, he gives us power and authority over the enemy, nothing at all will harm you, that's pretty secure. That's pretty rock solid. I love how scripture testifies to scripture and important for us to all. Get into your Bible, get into the word and read the word and you see how it uh, complements itself. In Luke, I'm sorry, in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Uh, Jesus, we see scripture testifying to scripture. Jesus is sharing with his disciples here this exact same uh, concept of being rock solid and secure. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This truth grounds me because it establishes the security of my salvation. Second thing, it grounds me because hopefully it does for you and it does for me that it energizes you for ministry. It energizes you to be used for the kingdom of God. And last week, Drew walked us through and challenged us with the sending out of the 72 and encouraged us to pray for the harvest not just to be passive participants in praying, like, yeah, okay, I can pray for that. I can pray for you to be involved in the harvest. And no, he's saying pray that we all would be participating in the harvest. What does that mean for me? Yeah, I'm gonna pray for people that they would respond to the harvest, pray that God would raise up workers, but also be praying that God, can you use me in this endeavor? And doing that, uh, and thinking about that and making it more personal, I'll admit, certainly been times in my life and maybe even now where I think of, hey, what does God want to do with you? How can he use you? And I think, whoa, 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 whoa. no, I, you know, I'm pretty OK right now with everything going on and everything I've got around me and hesitations pop up. And I want to speak to those hesitations a little bit when it comes to us being energized for ministries, we have hang-ups and hesitations and things that mm, make us pause, as it were. And I think all of those things, or most of those things, if not all of them, have tentacles and can be traced back to one word, and that one word is security. Security is a big word, and it means a lot, but security physically Security financially, security, everything that I have around me gives me my security. My family, all of it. And that can be our number one hesitation to being energized and saying, God, I'll do anything for you in ministry. I'll do anything that you lead me to. First, physically. Again, those, and then in our physical security is rooted in what came previously, and that is. No one can snatch us from the hand of God, that we are locked in, rock-solid, secure. And knowing that, that my eternal destiny is rock-solid and locked in, how does that change how I live my life? And being willing to say, God, use me in no matter, no matter what it looks like. Physical security, we can still have some hesitation. And those hearing these words, <clears throat> no doubt, connected the dangers of the desert the snakes and scorpions that, you know, we can stomp on. Uh, But knowing that being sent out for God, you're going to encounter some of those things. But rest assured, be at peace. We have victory over that. But also remembering this in the context of Psalm 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. He has us in the palm of his hand. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you will never, if you say, hey, God, I'm energized for ministry, use me no matter what. And then I can say, no matter, you know, I, I never have to worry about finding a scorpion in my sandal or a snake in the bottom of my sleeping bag. No, it's going to be hard. There's no, no way around that, no, no kidding around that. If you talk to any missionary, anyone that's, that's gone overseas, they, they won't say, oh, it's awesome, It's, they might say it's awesome, but they won't say it's simple. How about that? That's the better way to say it. They won't say it's easy, it's simple. No. There are difficulties, but we can face these difficulties knowing that we are rock solid, secure in him. That My life is not this brief vapor that is here right now. My life is rock-solid, secure for an eternity in Christ Jesus because of what he is or what he's done and who he is. The hearer knew that his life was in the hands, the hearer of this this message in in this New Testament context, knew that his life was in the hands of a God who cared and would see that his life was used purposefully even in trouble knew that they were not immune from danger, injury, or even death of of martyrdom, but in the overruling purpose of God, all the combined forces of evil could not defeat them. All the combined forces of evil could not defeat them. If you've had the the privilege and the blessing of spending time around the turkey team, um, you find out what fills their tank, what really gets them energized for ministry, If you can imagine what gets Joe Stewart and Rochelle Stewart pumped up and just like wild hair and wild eyed, and I know that's like impossible to imagine Joe Stewart like pumped up. Uh, If you've ever seen that, apparently no one has here, (laughs) but that was a joke. But if you want to know what really gets them charged up and energized for ministry, it is exactly this. Knowing that, hey, I am going head to head, hand to hand. I am going into the fight against the forces of evil, and I'm knowing that they cannot prevail against the power of God. And not just like, yay, we're on the winning team, and I'm going to go like knock some heads together. No, I'm going and engaging in this battle because of what's at stake, and that is lost people coming to Christ. A priority of Jesus, the number one priority, is he loves lost people, and he wants them found. He wants them to know him personally. The Western Asia team gets a chance to do this every single day in their rubbing elbows with people who have maybe never heard of the gospel. Joe and Rochelle get the chance to do the exact same thing. And last week... As Drew challenged us to be part in praying for the 72, he prayed specifically that there would be 72 from LCF that would be raised up and respond and challenged to say, God, here am I. I want to be part of this. I will do whatever it takes. No doubt I am speaking to some of those 72 people right now, and also no doubt I am speaking to some of the 72 that right now are thinking I'm not part of the 72. You have no clue that you're part of the 72, but you are. There's someone here here that is. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you with this. Would you be brave enough to pray? And what I mean by that is, is you know, we, we think of God, okay, you're going to raise up 72 from, from LCF, but... I've never been trained as a pastor. I've never been trained as a missionary. I'm well into my career even, and I've got everything set up pretty a okay here, and to uproot that and go somewhere, what that all means, that's like impossible. That could never happen. And we come up with all of the ways that this is ridiculous and a a crazy thought because, again, that's just not me. That's not who God made me to be. God has blessed LCF with a multitude of people in this congregation who are significantly and wonderfully blessed uh, with great minds and abilities and talents in the professional world, whether that be business or education or, or whatever. Right? There's some pretty snappy people here. I mean that as a compliment. And so my prayer is, would you be brave enough to say, would you be brave enough to pray, God, would you use me and maybe there would be an open door where I could do what I am doing now with, with, uh, God, I could be who you put me together to be and, and even work in a setting in an international context. God isn't saying, I'm gonna completely change you into something else to use you. He's saying, I have put you together already with gifts, talents, abilities, and a purpose, and I can use you anywhere. Would you be brave enough to pray to say, God, Maybe there's an open door where I can go work in my current field of occupation in a country that is closed to the gospel. In a country where maybe the church is tiny or maybe doesn't even exist. And you could be Christ to co-workers who otherwise would never hear the gospel no church for them to go to. It's just as important, just as significant to be a Christian witness, to be a beacon for Christ in a professional setting, in an international context, as it is to say, I'm a trained pastor, or I'm a trained missionary, or I'm a trained evangelist. No. God gave you gifts, talents, and abilities for a specific person. Would you be brave enough to say, God, how can I use those in a context, in a community in a people group that doesn't know you. It energizes us for ministry when we know who we are ministering with or ministering for or understand completely and totally who Jesus is and what he has done for us. <clears throat> Pray about that. Verse 20, it brings us to the most significant however in this passage, and maybe the most significant however ever, when he says, However, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The significance of that is don't confuse gifts and grace. What I mean by that is don't confuse the the action of what's being done, thinking that's where the magic is or that's where the significance is. It's in God's grace as he brings a dead heart to life. That's what we celebrate. And that's what we rejoice over. There's a danger in overvaluing the gifts that we possess and thinking that, well, it's really my wonderful ability to or take the word that uh, does stuff, and I'm not sure I used that word correctly. Or it's, you know, we can come up with all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, gifts that we look at that we may overvalue to think that, again, that's what the, or where the power comes from. Or we look at someone else, and we, with envy, look at their gift and say, oh, if only I could do what they do, then God could use me. No. Again, it's, The grace that God extends to human hearts that brings them to life that does the work. He is simply saying to us, would you use what I've given you? Don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you. Don't rejoice in uh, or think that the most important thing is the the action of it. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Uh, Salvation. Rejoice in the joy of, the wonder of, the miracle of salvation. J.C. Ryle adequately says, gifts without grace saves no one's soul. So may we trust in his grace all the more. So as I reflect uh, with my heart again, uh, it brings me to a place of rejoicing. Verse 21, Jesus says this, At that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Significant here because this is the only place in Scripture where we see Jesus rejoicing. It's not that he was a a stuffy, serious all the time, no fun kind of guy, not at all. He was filled with joy continuously, but actively rejoicing over something. This is what he was doing. And so what makes God's heart glad? What makes Jesus' heart rejoice? It's this right here. And so let's be careful not not to look past what he is rejoicing over. It's not the ability of the 72 disciples, not saying that, oh man, they came back and they were successful. That must have made me a pretty good enabler or a pretty good trainer. There's nothing about his own popularity or his influence increasing that he is rejoicing over. No, he is rejoicing over salvation. God's greatest joy is my confession. God glories in seeing his creation redeemed. God glories in seeing his creation come to life. It's all about the miracle of dead coming to life few weeks we're going to get to Luke chapter 15 and in Luke 15 7 we see there is more joy in heaven for one coming to faith than there is for the 99 so that joy experienced in heaven that picture of joy and celebration in heaven Jesus is manifesting that right here uh, amongst his disciples right here on earth that's what it looks like get a little glimpse of of heaven there because he says, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants, it triggers a question that may be triggered in your mind as well. And that is, does he intentionally hide things so that people cannot see the, the, who, who he is? Or does he intentionally like withhold and, and not tell people who he is in some cases? Not the case. We see that Israel's religious leaders, the the rulers of this time, and in these three cities who would have been the dominant force of this area. And I did some quick Greek study, and I found that, I'm pretty sure this is correct, that the word for religious leaders was smarty pants. So that Israel's religious smarty pants, they professed to know and understand God's purpose and plan. Yet their rejections of Jesus and his kingdom priorities proved that it was unknown to them. They refused to believe. The son chooses to reveal God only only to those who want to know him. Religious leaders were consistently requesting Jesus to perform some kind of sign which might convince them that they did not want to believe, when they did not want to believe. If you look through the, the Gospels, when these religious leaders, when the smarty pants demanded a sign or, or asked Jesus to perform a sign on demand, it wasn't so that they may believe. Often it was to try to trap him, right? We see that uh, listed a lot in, in scripture. Religious leaders weren't interested in knowing, and so Jesus refused to perform these signs on demand. The only sign promised was that of his death and resurrection. And so their unbelief was not due to God's failure to reveal, it was the inevitable result of the people's failure to, un- to apprehend. Jesus does not and did not force his will on anyone. He chose to reveal God, but only to those who were willing to believe and accept him. It says he revealed them to infants. And that doesn't mean simpletons. That doesn't mean you know simple human beings or, or just babies. What that means, and I think a proper understanding of that, is God has revealed to those humble enough to not think so much of themselves that they, think, that they think they're kings of their own heart. The religious leaders certainly were the kings of their own heart. Tyre and Sidon... Certainly, were the kings of their own heart. They didn't need anyone or anything. They were pretty good on their own. And now, this whole region had become harder and harder <clears throat> in their thoughts about we know everything. The big themes throughout Luke, uh, Tim showed us at the beginning of our journey and our walk through Luke, uh, are consistent here as well. And that God pursues the overlooked, the outsider. The humble in heart pursues them continually. Also know and can take heart in the fact that we find reconciliation, we find salvation through Jesus, that we are reconciled to God through him. No one knows the Son but the Father, and the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son desires to reveal him. Our reconciliation is in Christ alone. We can rejoice in the reconciliation to God through Christ. John 14 emphasizes this as well when Jesus, together with his disciples, said, don't let your hearts be troubled. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> and if you know me, you know the Father as well. Reconciliation to God is found through Christ alone. And what we find in Christ alone is again, hearts are brought from death to life. A marvelous, wonderful reason for rejoicing. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So my heart reflects, my heart rejoices, and now my heart responds. Jesus says, blessed are the eyes that see the things you see, to his disciples. Many wanted to see the things, but you, but didn't see them. What things is he talking about? <clears throat> is he talking about simply the action of the miracles that, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm glad you were able to see that. Daily ministry of Jesus. That would be true only if we were viewing Jesus as, quote, unquote, good teacher. Rather, today in 2021, and this is true for the disciples hearing this as well, we have the most basic understanding of how great the advantages and the benefits we enjoy as believers, as a people who have lived since Jesus came into the world. Because Old Testament saints looked to a coming Messiah, a savior by faith, and believed in a, in a resurrection and life to come. But the coming of Jesus, the reality of his birth, death and resurrection, unlocked a multitude of scriptures and cleared up numerous doubtful points which before had never been solved. What a glorious, amazing thing that you hold your Bible in your hand right now and it contains the Old and the New Testament. It contains the prophecy and the fulfillment. And we see the ministry of Jesus unlocking all of those what were previous mysteries about a Messiah and a Savior is to come. And we can look at that and say, The picture is complete. What a glorious picture that is. And truly, blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. As I take that in, what is my response to that? What is my heart's response? Am I again lulled to sleep by even something spectacular that may have become familiar and my wonder, my worship, my response is muted? Or will I say, God, I will unashamedly, unabashedly throw myself at you for all that you have for me. When what is indescribably spectacular becomes familiar and ordinary, two things happen. First, my wonder is muted. Second, my responsiveness is put on pause. I'm unable to respond. A deeper understanding of the joy of salvation, the miracle of life coming from death, should bring us to a deeper sense of worship and wonder, a deeper sense of our own debt to God and a desire to give back all that is due Him. This morning, I understand, and if we've lived life at all, we've felt this as well. So sometimes it's, it's, yeah, the familiar that, that mutes our response, but also life gets heavy. Life is hurting. My, my life is, is hurting. And when life gets excruciatingly hard, our hearts get heavy and our eyes fixate on the harsh realities of our situations. And we desire answers. We seek solutions. That's normal. That's okay. it's what we do. And I can't give you what at this moment will feel like all the satisfactory answers to the whys, the whats, and the hows about what God is doing in this particular and specific and maybe painful moment of of life. But I can and will point you to to God's unwavering faithfulness, his unrivaled strength, his unrelenting grace and consistent truth of all he's done and been in the past. You will find that God who has shown himself gracious to us in the past will be the same for us today. And then we can trust him to lead us, to carry us into tomorrow as well. This is what we celebrate. This is what we rejoice in. That if your name is already written in the book of heaven, praise God, never let that miraculous gift of salvation lose its wonder. If you've never come to that place, if you've never responded to God's grace, if you've never looked at and said, Jesus is the Messiah, he is our Savior, know that there is a wide-open invitation for you this morning as well. That what God glories in most is our own humble confession, as God deals with us, we don't find condemnation or accusation, we find forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. There's no better time than right now to have an immediate application and to put into practice what sometimes is familiar in a chance to really cherish it and 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 celebrate it for all that it signifies and all of the glory that it brings. And that is, we're going to participate in worship and communion together this morning.